Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually, as always, by Lucas Mitzel. Lucas, this is our 101st episode, and I can't believe I'm saying that. And up until now, it's just been us talking, but for the first time, we actually have the contributions of a special guest. Not live, mind you, but somebody who is willing to talk to me about being on site at the World Series. Up to this point, it's been a lot of research from books and newspaper articles and occasionally talking to family who had memories of watching games and more recently memories that we've had from watching games. But you have a connection here to this particular World Series. You might as well take advantage of it. That's right. So Mike Berardino, at the time of the 2003 World Series, was the national baseball reporter for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. He is currently the Notre Dame football beach reporter for the South Bend Tribune. And by accident, during my research for this episode, I discovered that he had a connection to this World Series. And I'll go more into that when I get to that particular point. But he went above and beyond and talked about various things going on with the World Series and after the World Series, before the World Series, and specifically the team that his publication covered, the National League champion Florida Marlins. And why don't we give him the floor for how he remembered that Marlins season? You know, that was a team that, similar to 97, didn't really start to uh, capture anybody's interest until September, and then it went from there, and uh, just crazy that it happened twice in a six-year span, but um, the difference was this team was the remnants of the uh, rebuild, largely, with some very, you know, it was like half and half. It was the Dombrowski-Henry solid rebuild uh, over a several-year period when they could cherry-pick prospects uh, with very low payroll, and then also some targeted uh, shopping and smart trades by Larry Beinfest and David Sampson and Jeffrey Loria. Um, it was kind of half and half, but then, of course, some inspired moves like bringing Miguel Cabrera up and letting him play the outfield because third base had been blocked with Mike Lowell and then the Jeff Conine trade just in time after Mike Lowell breaks his uh, finger or his hand. And, uh, you know, all kinds of... Chad Fox was unstoppable as a setup man, uh, basically a journeyman, but he found his role. And that was a year that Jack McKeon taking over uh, after Jeff Torborg was fired. Brad Arnsberg was fired in May. It seemed like uh, it had been forever since that had actually led to a playoff team. And it was just wild. So, yeah, a very unexpected pens winner. As you heard, they fired Jeff Torborg during the season. They hired a man named Jack McKeon, who had been out of baseball for a few years. And he was able to manage them to the second best record in baseball after he took over in May. They started out six games below 500. They had a 75 and 49 record afterwards. That was the second best in baseball. Only the second winning season in Marlins history. The other one obviously being when they won the World Series in 1997. McKeon, for his part, won NL Manager of the Year. You had three pitchers winning 14 games. Brad Penny, Mark Redman, and... Dontrell Willis. Willis, of course, would win National League Rookie of the Year honors. And you also have a solid power hitter in Mike Lowell, 32 home runs, 105 RBIs, and a nice leadoff hitter in Juan Pierre, 65 stolen bases to lead the National League. And ironically, it was because Lowell missed some time, as you might have heard, that enabled a future Hall of Famer in 20-year-old Miguel Cabrera. 
Cabrera ended up playing 87 games for the 2003 Marlins. He hit 268, had a dozen home runs, knocked in 62. So, I mean, pretty clearly early on, like, he showed that he belonged at the major league level. He just retired this prior offseason when we're recording this. In five years' time, he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. This is not up for debate. So glad that he gets an early uh, appearance in the World Series in his career. One of the other big names on this roster is somebody who's been around the block for a little bit and has been a key contributor as one of the best players in the game and signs a one-year deal with the Marlins, and that is catcher Ivan Rodriguez. That's right. We heard Mike mention Pudge Rodriguez right there. He's not the original Pudge who played catcher. That would go to Carlton Fisk, but that is neither here nor there. And he was actually MVP of the National League Championship Series before they got to the World Series. Speaking of which... No! Nothing of note happened in the National League Championship Series. We've been over this. You would think so, but we cannot be a Chicago-based World Series history podcast with the two of us being big Chicago baseball fans and not ask Mike about his recollection of a game that can only be known as the Steve Bartman game. So, Mike, take it away. Wow. Um, very strange. I obviously um, still feel for Bartman to this day. I remember um, at that point, Mark Pryor was cruising, as we know, and uh, my uh, late uh, cohort, Juan Rodriguez, was uh, with me in the press box. You know, at that time of the postseason, not everybody from even the main coverage group of that team involved can make it into the press box, but we were there, and others from our group were, were out maybe down in the bleachers. But we were right behind home plate, and um, I had my column ready to go. It was pretty much uh, over, and uh, both Juan and I had young children at home and wives that wanted us to get back home and I went down the hall and got an oversized chocolate chip cookie and I came back and sat next to him and uh, before the SEA thing was about to start and I said I'm going to eat this in honor of Mark Pryor because he was getting his home you know, anybody who covers the postseason, uh, at some point, you uh, you just want the thing to be over with. You've, you've been on the road for weeks. As great and captivating as it is, you know, you're always happy to see the thing come to a completion. In this case, there's a nice run for the Marlins, but, you know, the Cubs have been waiting forever. And uh, I wasn't halfway through that cookie when uh, I'm not sure I ever finished that cookie because uh, it's big. It was big, but uh, that inning was long. And, of course, Bartman, we all know that perspective. From a perspective that we saw, you know, it was like, what was, we didn't know what was going on. But Dave Hyde, our great columnist who's still at South Florida Sun Sentinel, he hustled down there from his vantage point, and, and he got close enough to hear some things. He didn't get a word with Bartman, but he talked to maybe some of the security people, wrote a typical great Dave Hyde column off of that. And then uh, we had to rework a few things up in the press box, and the cookie, the cookie just crumbled. Thank you for that, and Jeffy, yes, I hate you. So in spite of that, we are going to continue with this. We didn't even mention some of the other pitchers, Josh Beckett and Carl Pavano, and we will get more into them as we go along here. But for the moment, let's consider our American League champion. Oh, look who's back, the New York Yankees, albeit after a thrilling American League championship series that happened after an epic walk-off home run by one Mr. Aaron Boone. Aaron Effin Boone, as he would come to be known in Boston following that uh, dramatic Game 7, and I just take a minute before we go over the Yankees and just realize how agonizingly close we were to probably the greatest storyline filled World Series of all time. You know, we were this close to a Red Sox 
Cubs Fall Classic, and unfortunately, because of Aaron Effing Boone and all of the hullabaloo that led up to that, and then everything that happened on two days in Chicago in October of 2003, we were right there, and we just missed it. I should also mention this. I forgot to mention this. After I stopped recording with Mike, he mentioned that that year he dressed up as Steve Bartman for Halloween. But you probably knew that because a lot of people were dressing as Bartman for Halloween that year. But I promise that's the last time I'm going to talk about this. Let's talk about this World Series. And obviously, on paper, you've got a major mismatch. If only for the facts that the Yankees have 128 games worth of series games on their roster compared to only 13 from the Marlins. And the Marlins have to go to Yankee Stadium because this is the first year in which home field advantage of the World Series was determined by the winner of the All-Star Game. That, of course, being the American League this year. The All-Star Game took place at U.S. Cellular Field. And everybody, after a while, didn't care for this I guess in a way it was better than alternating every year, but at the same time, sure, people are still wondering why isn't the team with a better record getting a home field advantage. Now, granted, the Yankees did have a better record that year. They won 101 games compared to 91 for the Marlins, but in future years, that will probably come to a head. But let us get into Game 1, and before we get into the action, we have to go over the reason I was able to track down Mike. So, in watching the World Series film, we noticed that for the second straight year, Robin Williams had an appearance. So, that got me curious to see maybe there was something online about him being there because he was a Giants fan the previous year. The Giants were in the World Series, so it would make sense that he was there. But he was there with his best friend, Billy Crystal. And Billy Crystal being a diehard Yankees fan, it would make sense. So, I'm going on YouTube to see if maybe there's anything about it. And a reporter for the Seattle Times by the name of Jeff Baker had uploaded an audio clip of Robin Williams talking, as it turned out, to Mike. And I did not know this until I read the description of the video. And in the video, which is just an audio recording, it's a still shot of Robin Williams at the World Series. Williams is cracking jokes about Josh Beckett, as well as the Marlins' attendance. And it would only make sense to have Mike tell his side of the story. Serendipitous, I'd say. I was, uh, you know, you're, we were a number of uh, media, you know, before the first game of the World Series in any year is going to be, um, the field's going to be crowded with uh, gawkers and passers through and whatever. But I was there with our South Florida Sun Sentinel crew, and uh, I was national baseball writer at the time. And so I was just on the lookout during batting practice for, for notes, you know, looking for note fodder. And uh, I think we noticed a hand, handful of writers standing there. I remember Jeff Baker from Seattle. I think Jerry Krasnick was with us in that uh, group. We were noticing that uh, Billy Crystal, who was often in the uh, mix behind home plate, basically badgering Joe Torre during uh, BP for the Yankees, was there, but also Robin Williams. And, um, yeah, is that, you know, is, one of those, is that Robin Williams? Yeah, I think so. And so we're maybe uh, 10 yards away, safely behind, but in position in case uh, anything uh, happens. You know, that's where Steinbrenner might have come out there and said a few things, or Brian Cashman, or from my perspective, the Marlins ownership, or whatever. But far better than any of that, we ended up uh, having Robin Williams come over. I don't remember how he ended up in our group. I would say that he was probably trying to go somewhere else, but uh, he just happened upon us, and, and I'm not sure, and it's not like uh, anybody 
anybody came over. There's no handler who said Robin's available for five minutes if you'd like him. But next thing you know, he's standing right there, and I'm to his left, shoulder to shoulder, and and just a handful of us. I mean, this he was working a group of about five or six, and uh, somehow I recognized that he was a Giants fan that postseason. I think in the Marlins had beaten the Giants in a great uh, mini series there. Um, and I asked him what he made of the Marlins since they'd taken out his Giants, and that just got him going as any talk show host from Carson the Letterman to whoever over the years knew you just had to start him just point him in the right direction and I think that the laughter and of course you're going to laugh everything he said was hilarious and it was it was just uh, it was surreal because it was like a command performance and it turned into back and forth uh, as you would with the manager or a GM or whatever but hilarious and wacky and uh, I used every bit of that I turned it into a sidebar for the Sun Sentinel and filed that uh, I think by the first pitch and uh, that you know, was a wild world series in general, but that kind of set the tone, didn't it? The lesson to be gained from this, as always, Robin Williams is a national treasure. He is a national treasure, and he is deeply missed. He is one of the celebrity deaths that really bothers me even now. By the way, the attendance for the Marlins that year, average-wise, was 16,089. The only teams with worse attendance were the Devil Rays and the Expos. The Expos were very close to leaving Montreal at this point. So let's get into the actual action. Juan Pierre, being Juan Pierre, bunts to lead off the game. He promptly moves to third on Luis Castile's single, and he scores on a Pudge Rodriguez sack fly. All that's done on five pitches. And the World Series film makes notes of the fact that that first inning surprisingly brought the Yankee Stadium crowd to a silence. Now, granted, they might have been emotionally drained from that epic series with the Red Sox the series before, but Joe Buck even mentions that he has not heard Yankee Stadium be that quiet before. And keep in mind, Joe Buck's time covering the World Series dates back to the start of the Yankees dynasty. So if Joe Buck is saying this, there's definitely some truth to it. He's been around Yankee Stadium a bunch of times at this point. You know, he has covered several of their titles and a few of their other appearances. Now, remember, this is a team that had won four out of five World Series and had appeared in five out of six. And then after a year off here, they're back. This is their sixth trip in the last eight seasons. And that's a large sample size to be saying, whoa, it is awfully quiet here at Yankee Stadium. And that it's bizarre, too, because David Wells, who had returned to the Yankees, we had mentioned in a prior episode, he had been dealt to Toronto for Roger Clemens. And Clemens has appeared multiple times in this podcast in recent episodes. But Wells is back here. And like you said, in five pitches is giving up bunt single to Juan Pierre. He does what he does. Luis Castillo singling him to third, and then sack fly by Pudge Rodriguez has all of a sudden the Marlins very quickly up one nothing. But the Yankees get back at in the third inning. Kareem Garcia singles to lead it off. He moves to second on Miguel Cabrera error in left field. Then we get a walk by Nick Johnson, and Garcia scores a Derek Jeter RBI single to tie the game. Johnson moves to third. And we have to talk about this. First base coach Lee Mazzilli, when Johnson initially walked, warned the base runner that Pudge Rodriguez has this big pickoff tendency. And in spite of that, Rodriguez picks him off third anyway. And that is it for the Yankees in that inning. And this leads to another anecdote from Mike. 
kind of a, was a jarring thing for the Yankees. I remember on the workout day the day before, because remember the Yankees had survived, as you know, Game 7 with the uh, Red Sox, and there was kind of that sense that the, they were ripe for a letdown. They, were, they certainly celebrated that and, and survived it. And Jason Jambi was at his locker on the workout day before Game 1, and it struck me that he really couldn't name any particular Marlins people. He was just speaking generalities, and uh, he might have messed up one of the names. I forget, but he was he was a little uh, sketchy on the details, kind of like I am now, but, but it struck me that he was uh, basically going to have to ramp it back up because the Marlins, as Josh Beckett said early in that postseason before game one of the Giants series, uh, he said something like, maybe we're just young and dumb enough to do this thing. So my response to that is I think Giambi should have spent a little more time learning the tendencies of the Marlins and the names of the Marlins and less time doing immoral activities, at least as far as baseball is concerned. Absolutely fair point, and it kind of goes to show you the whole narrative of this storyline is like, you know, this is a Marlins group. We saw this in the World Series film leading up to this game one of this Marlins team was very loose and not even in a we're happy to be here, but just in a they weren't letting the moment overcome them. And, you know, obviously a big part of that is Ivan Rodriguez doing Ivan Rodriguez things and recognizing his moment and it was a great job as well by Marlins third baseman Mike Lowell to be able to read the situation and make a break back to third and Nick Johnson gunned down easily. And I am not going to waste any opportunity to throw shade at Jason Giambi, not only for what he did, but also for the fact that what he did led to Frank Thomas being robbed of the American League MVP award in 2000. I am not apologizing for that at all. Fair. So we go into the fifth inning. Jeff Conine walks and Juan Encarnacion singles to lead it off. Both advance on a Alex Gonzalez sack bunt. He scores on a Juan Pierre RBI single to opposite field that beats the Yankees infield coming in. Although Encarnacion could have been out had Aaron Boone not cut off Hideki Matsui's throw from left. And I think that there was a good case for that. Obviously, there aren't any guarantees. And still... You have to wonder, what if? Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been a close play regardless. I don't know that it would have necessarily been a guarantee. I think uh, Wells had mentioned that he, you know, because he was going up to back up the play, figuring that they had Encarnacion dead to rights, and instead you have the cutoff there, and, you know, Wells had mentioned that he figured it was going to be out by 15 feet, and I don't know about that, but it would have definitely been a close play. Then the sixth inning, Bernie Williams hits a sole home run to right center with one out. Matsui fouls that with a single. So Dontrell Willis, who is normally a starter, comes in relief to relieve Brad Penny to counter a heavy left-handed hitting lineup that the Bombers are putting out. And he holds him at bay for a little bit, at least until Williams and Matsui have back-to-back singles with two outs in the eighth inning. And that prompts Ugether Bina to relieve Willis and strike out Jorge Posada, who won a silver slugger that year. Then Giambi walks to lead off the ninth, and Ruben Sierra, who is pinch-hitting for Juan Rivera, walks with one out, but Urbina retires the next two batters for the save. 3-2, the final score is the first time the Yankees have lost a World Series game at home in 11 games. The last time was Game 2 of the 1996 series, and it's the first Game 1 loss by one run at Yankee Stadium since the 1923 series. And not only that, the Yankees would end up losing Game 1 of every playoff series that year. Now, the Angels did it the year before, and they still won, so they at least have that to hold on to, but still, not a good start for the Bombers. No, absolutely not. And that 1923 stat absolutely blew me away when I heard that number two. 
you have the Marlins being able to take advantage here, and no matter what happens in Game 2, they've done their job and earned at least one on the road. So we go to Game 2. The Yankees have to be glad that Andy Pett is on the mound, in part because he has 149 wins, which is two more wins than the entire Marlins rotation. And he's being opposed by Mark Redman, who is winless in the postseason. Luis Castillo has an infield single with one out in the first, but is victimized by a strike out, throw him out to end the inning. Giambi is hit by a pitch with one out in the bottom half. He moves to third on Williams' single, and he scores on a three-run homer by Matsui to center. That is the first series home run by a Japanese-born player. And we'll see more heroics from Hideki Matsui in the World Series down the line with his power. But for the moment, this will do. Nick Johnson has a bunt single with one out in the second. He promptly scores from first on Juan Rivera RBI double. But Rivera is thrown out at third on a 7-6-2-5 relay. Andy Pedd is doing just fine. He strikes out the side in the third inning. Then he gets some more support in the fourth. Johnson singles with one out. He later scores on Alfonso Soriano. Two-run home run, two left. Pedd comes out for the ninth to try and complete the first Yankees series shutout since Ralph Terry in Game 7 of the 62 series, a.k.a. the Wycombe McCovey if hit the ball just three feet higher game. Luis Castillo singles with one out. He moves to second on an Aaron Boone error at third with two outs. And he scores a Derek Lee RBI single to ruin the shutout. Jose Contreras relieves Andy Pat and gets the final out. Six to one, the final score for the Yankees. But man, what a rough couple of games defensively for Aaron Boone. Definitely um, kind of faltering a little bit after his heroics to end the ALCS against Boston. Now, grand scheme of things, this one not really mattering a whole lot as opposed to the game one where his potential mental miscue might have cost the Yankees that game. Regardless, you're even at one going down to South Florida and... If you're the Yankees, you still have to be feeling relatively confident about everything at this point. So we go to South Florida for Game 3 after Andy Pettit wins the 13th game of his playoff career, which ties John Smoltz for the most of all time. And 65,731 are in attendance. And the World Series film points out that many of them are Yankees fan transplants, which, you know, it's Florida, so it makes sense. And there are a lot of transplants in Florida. Juan Pierre doubles to lead off the first inning. That is the Marvin's first extra base hit of the series. He later scores a Cabrera RBI single. Then Jeter doubles with one out in the fourth to give the Yankees their first base runner after Josh Beckett retired the first 11 hitters. Then Giambi walks, Matsui is hit by a pitch, and Pasal walks with the bases low to score Jeter. And then the rains come, 39 minutes pass by before the game is able to resume. That happens in the fifth inning, is the first World Series rain delay since Game 3 of the 1993 series in Philadelphia. So not a bad streak that unfortunately had to end. Then Rodriguez doubles with one out in the sixth. He moves to third on Cabrera's single, but is caught in a rundown after Lee hits a ball back to Mike Messina. And Messina, being a gold glover, is going to do things with his glove. And Lowell strikes out to end the inning. Jeter doubles with one out in the eighth inning. Beckett, who gave up all three of his hits to Jeter, believe it or not, is relieved by Willis after throwing 108 pitches, striking out 10 walking three and giving up two runs and three hits over seven and a third innings. And then Giambi walks, Jeter moves to third out, Williams fly out, and then Matsui scores Jeter on an RBI single. Mario Rivera enters in the eighth inning, retires Marlins on six pitches. Then Aaron Boone leads off the ninth inning with a home run to left, so he's lacking in defense this series. He's making up for with his bat. 
Then Alfonso Sorrell walks. That prompts Braden Looper to relieve Chad Fox. And he promptly hits Jeter. Williams hits his playoff record 19th career home run to center field. That scores three runs. That gives him the most RBIs in playoff history at 65. And then in the bottom half, Rivera gets his 30th career playoff save. That gives him 70 appearances of 21 Yankees World Series wins since the dynasty began. The final score in this one, 6-1. to one. Yeah, back-to-back 6-1 to one victories here, and the Yankees seem like at this point they've got the initial, okay, the Marlins kind of put a little bit of doubt into everybody's mind of, whoa, what's going on, and, you know, back-to-back relatively convincing wins here. This one, a tight game of credit Josh Beckett for throwing an absolute masterpiece other than just running into trouble with Derek Jeter Jeter going three for four up to that point and the Yankees doing what they do and being able to make the Marlins pay for that and then go long ball in the ninth to get a little bit of insurance and they are in control of the series up two to one we go to game four Roger Clemens has started the game he is the sixth 300 game winner to pitch in the series in the first since Steve Carlton in game three of the 1983 series the World Series film at this point basically turns to a Roger Clemens slobber fest because at the time this game was played and at the time this World Series film came out, Clemens had made it clear that he was going to be done with baseball after this game. We would find out later that that was completely not true, but in any event, we get to see him soak it all in. I would, at the time, it was believed to be his final start. And the Marlins have no use for that. Rodriguez singles on the eighth pitch of his at-bat with two outs in the first inning. He promptly scores a two-run home run to right by Cabrera after a seven-pitch at-bat. And knowing what we know now about Clemens and Cabrera, I say, good for you, Miggy. Good for you. Indeed. And then Conine and Lowe have back-to-back singles. Conine scores from third on a Lee RBI single. And that is it for the Marlins offense in that inning. The Yankees have three straight singles to begin the second inning, but Boone drives in what turns out to be the inning's only run on a sack fly. Clemens, to his credit, settles in after that. He retires 19 of his final 22 batters face. He also leads off the fifth inning with a single. And by the time it was clear that he was going to be coming out, Pro Player Stadium was filled with flashbulbs during the final inning. You don't really see flashbulbs anymore. Not everybody's got their phones out. And the crowd gives him a standing ovation after he strikes out Luis Castillo to end the seventh inning. And the Marlins give him an ovation. And he gives a very lengthy curtain call. And I should be really sentimental about this. But given everything that happened after this World Series, I can't. I just can't. Well, in 2003, you know, we didn't know then what we know now. And so, I mean, all of the praise and the accolades and the, you know, he's a future Hall of Famer, you know, at the time, all of that made sense. But again, you know, we didn't know then what we know now. Very true. Carl Pavao actually outpitches Clemens in this game. He pitches eight innings, allows seven hits and no walks. So it's Urbina time. And Williams singles with one out in the ninth inning, and he promptly moves to second on a Matsui walk. And then in a pinch-hitting spot, Sierra, who is pinching for Garcia, ties the game on a two-RBI triple with two outs and with two strikes on him. Then Contreras comes in the ninth inning. He throws a perfect inning. That sends the game to extra innings. Yeah, the Yankees look like they're going to take control of the series. In fact, seize control with the bases loaded and one out. But Looper enters as part of a double switch. He strikes out Boone and induces a John Flaherty pop out to third. Meanwhile, Jeff Weaver, who 
had warmed up when Clemens was in trouble in the first inning, entered the game for the first time since September 24th against the White Sox. Espan Loaiza won his 20th game in that game. Very interesting season for one Mr. Loaiza, who will actually be a Yankee next year when he gets traded there. Weaver throws eight pitches in a perfect bottom of the 11th. And then Alex Gonzalez comes up to lead off the 12th inning. And he hits a high fly ball to left field. And it barely clears the wall. And that's the 13th walk-off home run in World Series history. And that's the first walk-off home run against the Yankees in the World Series since Bill Mazeroski walked off the 1960 series. And is the latest walk-off home run in a World Series game since Carlton Fisk waved that ball fair at Fenway back in 1975. So the series is tied after the Marlins win a 4-3 thriller. Yeah, and we have to talk a little bit about that home run, too, with the way the wall at Pro Player Stadium is set up is, you know, it's not a uniform height wall. It's, it's pretty high for a lot of it, but then there's a stretch of, I don't know, maybe 20 feet or so that's kind of tucked down, and I think it might have been Derek Lee who was talking about watching it and just wanting to make sure that it hooks to where the wall is lower but stays inside the foul pole, and it did. And Alex Gonzalez is the hero in Game 4, and it's a complete reversal of fortune where, you know, you have the Yankees tying the game in the top half of the ninth inning off of Urbina, and, you know, this has been something that they have done time and time again. You know, we saw it in 98 and 99 and 2000 and a little bit in 2001 before the Diamondbacks were able to reverse things on their end in that game seven. And here we have another example of it in this game four of, yes, there's still a little bit of a mystique, but these aren't the same damn Yankees. So we go to game five and there's a lot of drama even before the game. Josh Beckett was playing long toss in the outfield. And at that point, Wayne Rosenthal, the pitching coach, asks, how does it feel, referring to his arm? He said, fine, I was more sore yesterday. I'm good to go. So Rosenthal told him, you've got Saturday, which means that he is going to start on short rest in game six. And we'll get more into that decision once we talk about game five. Alfonso Soriano is held out of the lineup for game five, and Giambi is a late scratch with a left leg injury. Also an interesting tidbit, Matsui and Cabrera both hit cleanup. That is the first time rookies are hitting cleanup in the same World Series game. And initially, it looks like Joe Torre is smart to bench Soriano because Jeter and Enrique Wilson lead off the game with back-to-back -back singles. Jeter scores on a Williams sack fly after moving to third on a lead error at first. And David Wells starts the game for the Yankees. He pitches a perfect first inning, but his back flares up. So he only lasts that one inning. So Jose Contreras has to come in and relieve him. Then Lowell and Lee have back-to-back -back walks with two outs of the second. Gonzalez scores Lowell on a ground rule double. Penny scores both runners on an RBI single. Hitting pitchers forever. And then Derek Lee singles to lead off the fourth inning. He scores a Juan Pierre RBI double later on. And then Rodriguez singles to lead off the fifth. Conine reaches on a field fielder's choice and a Wilson error. Low scores both on RBI single. But the Yankees have a little bit of offense. Johnson and Garcia have back-to-back -back singles to lead off the seventh. And then Johnson later scores on a Jeter RBI single. But Garcia is stranded. Brad Penny leaves with a blister after giving up one earned run on eight hits and two walks over seven innings. 
But it turns out that there's a little bit more to it than that. Because Jack McKeon would say after the game that Penny told him that he needed to get his blister taken care of because he wanted to be available for relief in a Game 7. Anyway, Dontrell Willis pitches a scoreless 8th inning, which ends on a strikeout of Soriano, who is pinch hitting for Garcia. Looper enters in the ninth inning, gives up a one-out solo home run to right center by Giambi, who is pinch hitting for Jeff Nelson. Then Derek Jeter singles and promptly scores from first on a Wilson RBI double. So McKeon says enough of this. He brings in Urbina to relieve Looper. Williams barely misses a home run to right on a flyout. Matsui grounds out to first to give Urbina the save. The Marlins will go to New York with a three games to two lead after they win this game six to four. The young guns are making it work and getting the interesting decision here with Brad Penny and the blister and potentially being available for game seven which kind of ties back into what we were talking about with the long toss and Josh Beckett and having him tentatively set to go for that game six because he would be doing so on three days rest. And we've talked a little bit about this and it's a little bit of a controversial decision just kind of in general of sending your starter on three days rest, especially in a situation like this where your back isn't up against the wall because you only need to win one more game. But Jack McKeon said it best on the World Series film and in the pregame interviews of, you know, I guess the Brad Penny decision to save him for Game 7 is kind of covering all of his bases. But the start of Beckett is with the intent of, I do not want this to go to a Game 7. I am using him now, and we are going to try to end this right here, right now. The big quotes that he gave before Game 6 was, This is the game we want to win. Forget pitch counts, rest, innings pitched, and all that. If Beckett's throwing good, I'll leave him in there for nine innings. But people, like you said, were not happy with this decision. They wondered why he wouldn't use Redmond or Dontrell Willis and save Beckett for proper rest in Game 7. And Beckett's only 23 years old at this point. And he threw four innings of relief during Game 7 of the NLCS. So this will be his fourth time pitching in 14 days. And you also have to keep in mind that over the past five playoffs, pitchers were 6-20 and 20 while pitching on short rest. And like you said, McKeon is very adamant that Beckett is going to throw. And he had been asked about the use of sabermetrics, and his response to that was, I didn't take that at school. And Tom Verducci wrote, McKeon is so old school that he's postmodern. He's so old that when he says, Abe Lincoln, he had a real good cutter. You wait a moment to make sure he's kidding. His ideas on pitching have been abandoned for so long they seem revolutionary. The more guys pitch, the better they become, McKeon says. They don't really put together until they reach 200 innings. And I think Dusty Baker might have taken that to Harlow too much when he had Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor, but that's neither here nor there. Too soon. So we go to game six. Beckett, as we mentioned, is throwing on three days rest against Andy Pettit. And maybe as a form of intimidation, the Yankee Stadium video crew decides that while the Marlins are taking batting practice, they are going to show a bunch of Yankee highlights from the recent past. And I don't know if their plan was to intimidate the Marlins. And as you mentioned, Lucas, as we saw in this World Series film, this group is so loose that nothing bothers them. Nothing at all. Yeah, no, and you have to absolutely give a ton of credit to this Marlins team. And the quote that we heard is like, you know, maybe they're too young and dumb to know any better. 
This game does turn out to be scoreless through four innings, so if people who love offense love Game 2 of last year's World Series, people of pitching will love Game 6 of this series. And then in the fifth inning, Gonzalez and Pierre have back-to-back -back singles with two outs. Castile singles, and Gonzalez scores on a play at the plate. Conine reaches on a Jeter throwing error to lead off the sixth inning. That's Jeter's first error in his past 27 series games. He reaches second on a Lowell walk, moves to third when Pettit opts to throw out Lowell at second instead on a lead bun. So a little bit of controversy there because that enables Conine to score on Encarnacion sack fly. But it really does not matter because Josh Beckett seems to be on on this nine. Besides, if Derek Jeter is making errors, you probably get the sense that it's not going to be your year. Alfonso Soriano singles to lead off the eighth inning, but Jeter flies out to center. So Mr. November is not Mr. October Part 2. Johnson then hits into a 4-6-3 double play. Beckett throws a perfect ninth inning. A complete game five hit shutout, strikeout nine, walking two. That ends when he tags out Posada unassisted. And the Marlins, unlikely as it may seem, have won the World Series for the second time on a complete game shutout from Josh Beckett, the first in the World Series clinching game since Jack Morris in 1991. So what's a night for Josh Beckett? And he vindicates Jack McKee and the oldest manager to win the World Series. Yeah, no, a um, phenomenal series for Josh Beckett. So he starts two games. He goes one and one, posts an ERA of just 110, allows a grand total of two earned runs. Both of those coming in his loss in game three, strikes out a series high 19 batters and just a sub 0.8 whip. The numbers are there. This is a no-brainer in terms of World Series MVP. And I think he single-handedly won it in that last game. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, you look at a lot of the numbers offensively for the Marlins, not great. They hit 232 as a group. Jeff Conine hit 333, but didn't drive in any runs. He did score four times, which was the most among Marlins. Uh, among a lot of their other bats, uh, Juan Pierre, their table setter, he did pretty well. He hit 333, drove in three runs, ended up with a 481 on base percentage as he walked five times, but a lot of their other big bats not really doing a ton. Pudge Rodriguez hit 273, so, you know, fair enough. They only hit two home runs as a team in this series. Miguel Cabrera had the one. Alex Gonzalez, obviously, the walk-off home run, but then other than that, you look at a lot of these numbers. Mike Lowell hit 217. Derek Lee hit 208. Juan Encarnacion hit just 182. Miggy, for his part, only hit 167 for the series, though he did end up driving in three runs. But, I mean, there aren't really any numbers that jump off the page at you there. And pitching-wise, good complimentary performances. Dontrell Willis in three relief appearances did not allow an earned run. Ugeterbina did post an ERA of six, but recorded a couple of saves in the series. Brad Penny went 2-0 with a 2.19 earned run average, so, I mean, he had a good start. But Josh Beckett pitching pretty well in Game 3 and then throwing the absolute masterpiece in Game 6 to clinch it. Yeah, he's World Series MVP, and it's not a discussion. Well, you have to keep in mind that it wasn't just Beckett who kept the Yankees' hitters off balance. It was that entire right-handed portion of the Marlins' rotation. Yeah, you had Redmond struggling. But Beckett, Penny, and Pavano, they had a combined 3-1 record with a 1.47 ERA. They allowed only 7 hits and 50 at-bats with runners in scoring position. 
Marlins stars end up throwing fewer than 20 pitches in 36 of their 41 innings. Rosenthal said we threw inside to lefties and righties the whole series and they didn't make any adjustment to it. Which might say a lot about the attitude of the Yankees who lost a series elimination game at home for the first time since the Dodgers won at Yankee Stadium in 1981. And I do wonder if they were able to have the success they did because they had professional highs and in innings pitched. Beckett had his high by 20 and two-thirds innings. Penny by 13 and a third innings. Pavano by 35 and a third innings. Willis by 52 innings. And Beckett only had 88 professional starts to his name by the end of this season. So the strength of the Marlins was their pitching. And if Josh Beckett had won World Series MVP, you easily could have given it to any one of those other guys, especially if they had to go to a Game 7 one of them had a fantastic outing. And, you know, if you want to go to a left-handed pitcher there as well, you know, Dontrell Willis would have been fresh and available for a Game 7 if necessary if you needed to go through those uh, left-handed hitters for the Yankees. And kind of the one fun thing here as we go back, you know, we touched on it a little bit in the 1997 episode, but in this 2003 one, I remember seeing signs at one of our local haunts, Philip B. Elstrom Stadium in Geneva, Illinois, the home of the King County Cougars, who at the time were single-A club. They were a farm team for the Florida Marlins. I remember seeing advertisements there in, I'm pretty sure it was the mid-2000s, of saying Beckett and Willis played here. And they were two of five former Kane County Cougars who would win rings with this Florida Marlins team. One of the other big names was, of course, Miguel Cabrera. And I do remember when Miguel Cabrera played with the Cougars at the beginning of his career. I'm glad that you mentioned the Cougars connection for Josh Beckett because soon after this World Series ended, I went back through my 2000 Kane County Cougars baseball card set and lo and behold, there was a Josh Beckett card. So I'm thinking this has got to be worth a lot of money right now. And I wish I would be able to figure out exactly how much that would have been worth. It's probably not worth as much now, but if I had sold it then, I probably could have gotten a nice chunk of change for it. Especially since he was the seventh pitcher to eliminate the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And no one else did as few major wins as Beckett when they did it. The only ones to do it without relief help were Johnny Beasley in 1942, Johnny Padres in 1955, and Lou Burdette in 1957. Yeah, and we will get to talk about Josh Beckett a little bit more a little bit later on in the podcast. But as we look ahead now to 2004, we have a major piece of history coming up that we are going to be looking at. We do have a major piece of history coming up, but for the moment, let's go back to Mike real quickly and get his overall thoughts on this particular World Series. They were very youthful and very talented, and uh, I think the Yankees took them lightly and um, turned out to be a classic uh, recipe for a World Series upset. And, um, yeah, so many things about that. We'll see Cabrera going the other way off of Clemens, um, Jack McKeon bringing Beckett back on short rest when everybody thought that was uh, presumptuous or crazy. And uh, obviously Game 6 happened as it did. Never underestimate um, young and dumb, I guess. And uh, they didn't take a backseat to anybody. They had pitching, and they had Pudge Rodriguez. I talked about a masterstroke to get him on a one-year deal when, oddly, uh, the rest of the industry had uh, turned its back on him that offseason, and that's part of the Hall of Fame story for him. 
And of course, I had to ask Mike about the celebration that took place in South Florida as well. They had a boat parade as part of it on the uh, New River in Fort Lauderdale. They had another version of it downtown in Miami. I, I did not attend any of that. Other riders had that. I had uh, young children at the time and did not cover it directly. I guess I kind of missed out on that. Yes, it was a madhouse. It was all carried on local television, and uh, that's not my scene. But um, it was certainly, uh, there was so much bandwagoning at that point. So I apologize, Lucas, for not following through with your 2004 preview. But like you said, a very long drought is going to come to an end. A very legendary drought at that, especially the reason behind that drought and that drought will come to an end against a team that you don't care for very much, at least you don't care for the franchise very much. No, not particularly, I don't. Especially if you are from the northeastern part of the country, you are definitely going to want to tune in next week to find out what happens. So for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 2003 edition of Then There Were Two, A History of the World series, and my thanks to Mike Berardino for sharing his stories about covering the Marlins during this particular time. And if you want to follow his work on Notre Dame football, go ahead and do that on the South Bend Tribune website. Or if you live in the South Bend area, go ahead and subscribe to the newspaper. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe. We'll see you next time.